You're listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hull United Methodist Church. Be sure to visit us at hopehullumc.org sermons, where you can subscribe to future episodes of SermonCast and browse our archive of past messages. Thanks for tuning in. John Wesley has famously said, there is no holiness without social holiness. He was not talking about social action, like uh, appealing to legislators and those kinds of things for social reforms, though he was very much a, promo- a proponent of major social reform in England in his day, though that's not what he meant when he said there's no holiness but social holiness. What he meant was that there's no growing in the way that we embody the character of God, apart from Christian community. When he talks about social holiness, he's talking about the social group, the community of believers. And we see in Wesley's ministry that he went around preaching the gospel, and as people responded to the gospel, he didn't just ask them to you know, come down front and commit their lives to Jesus and then never have anything to do with them again. Instead, he invited them to commit their lives to Jesus, and then he organized them into social groups to grow in holiness, into little groups of people, and those groups came in different ways. There were groups of maybe 10, 12 uh, men and women who would meet together to pray and to read the Scriptures, And he called those class meetings. It may sound kind of like a schoolroom, but that's not what he meant. Remember, this is 18th century England. His language is a little bit different than ours. But that was a group kind of like an adult ed Wednesday night Bible study or Sunday school class. But then he also organized people into smaller groups. Three, four, five people. Guys with guys, gals with gals. Because he wanted the believers, and he believed it was grounded in Scripture, that believers to grow in Christ-likeness so that they increasingly embody the character of God, it was absolutely essential that they connect with other believers at a very deep level to ask questions like, how is your soul? And where are you struggling? And what are you celebrating? And how can I pray for you? And how can we bear one another's burdens? He called those band meetings. Well, again, not, no one was playing instruments. But they were banding together. A band of brothers, a band of sisters to bear one another's burdens and to celebrate one another's joy. And so when Wesley said there's no holiness without social holiness, he was saying there's no way we can aspire all we want to grow in Christ's likeness, but there's no way to actually do that unless we get into each other's lives and cultivate really serious, really deep community. And so he took people who responded to his preaching and he organized them into these kinds of groups, discipleship bands. Because real transformation only happens in community. That's a general principle, and it is applicable across the Scriptures. We see it in Jesus' own ministry, don't we? First thing He does in the Gospels is, when His ministry is launched, is He gathers a group of of men together, a group of brothers that He can trust, and that He can relate to, that He can teach, that He can disciple, that He can instruct. And within that group, there's an even tighter group. There's three Peter, James, and John who go with him when the others don't. There's Jesus' own band meeting right there. 
They get to go with Him to the Mount of Transfiguration. They go with Him into the Garden of Gethsemane. And these are folks who are there to carry His burdens and to celebrate His joys. Now when you have general principles that come up in the Bible, they only really help us if you apply the general principles to specific situations. Does that make sense? So we can kind of articulate the principle, no holiness but social holiness, or something like that. But if we don't actually apply it and appropriate it and live into it in specific ways, the principle doesn't do us very much good, does it? You can have a principle, but if you don't do anything with it, it remains a principle and doesn't actually transform your life. And so this month we're talking about generosity on the path of discipleship. Path of discipleship. I hope you know it by now. If not, we're going to keep talking about it. Three words. What are they? Worship, connect, serve. And that represents uh, a very clear step one, step two, step three pathway. Not to pretend discipleship is a formula where you put in uh, data and get certain results. The point is that if we are worshiping Jesus, if we are connected in deep community to bear one another's burdens, and if we are serving inside the walls and outside the walls in mission together, chances are, in the power of the Spirit and by the grace of God, we are going to grow in Christ-likeness. This is how disciples are made. They worship together, they connect in community, and they serve alongside one another to follow Jesus and change the world. And as we do that, we increasingly embody God's character. Right? Holiness is about embodying the character of a holy God who is faithful, who is truthful, who has integrity, who keeps His promises, and who is generous. And if God is generous in His character, and if holiness and Christ-likeness is about embodying His character, and if that character is forged in community, then we desperately need deep Christian community if we're going to grow in generosity, if we're going to be increasingly generous people. And as we reflect on 2 Corinthians 8, it's implicit right under the surface, the community is essential. Paul is inviting the Corinthians to embody a, the, the, the generosity of God by living in deep, self-giving love with one another. Because he understands that there is no deep generosity without deep community. That's the bottom line. For our thoughts today, there is no deep generosity without deep community. Now the background of 2 Corinthians 8 is important. The Apostle Paul is taking up a collection. He's a preacher, that's what we do, right? That was supposed to be funny, apparently it wasn't. Everybody's like, no kidding. Paul's taking up a collection for the churches in Jerusalem. So he's traveling around the area that we know is, uh, as Greece, Macedonia, Philippi in the north, Corinth, kind of down on the peninsula in the south. He's traveling around to these churches and he is encouraging them 
to make a contribution to the collection. He tells us about the Macedonians. Philippi was in the area of Macedonia, so when he went, like this is the Philippians he's talking about here, church in Philippi. He says, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, about the grace of God that has been granted to the churches of Macedonia, to the Philippians. For during a severe ordeal of affliction, and if you read Philippians, you can hear that they are feeling pressure, they are being opposed, they're being persecuted. During a severe ordeal of affliction, their abundant joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity. And so even though they were feeling the pressure, they embodied generosity and made a contribution to this collection, not for Paul, but for the, the believers in Jerusalem. And Paul understood, and this has some application in our world, right? because in in Macedonia and in Corinth, in, in, in the area we know as Greece, in Greece, right, you've got more kind of European folks. And over in Israel, kind of the Middle East, right, they're not far apart, but they are kind of distinct geographical regions as we, as we experience them today and, and, and then. Kind of Middle East and kind of European almost over here. And there's ethnic distinctions. you got Gentiles, you got Jews. And there was significant ethnic hostility between Gentiles and Jews. Significant. These folks, like, they, they did not really care for each other. The Jews called the Gentiles uh, Gentile dogs, Gentile sinners. They had all these little epithets that they can just, you can pull them out whenever you need to criticize somebody who's not like you. They did that. Gentiles, if you read the literature, were very antagonistic towards the Jews. It was a stunning thing. There was at one point there was a time where one of the Roman emperors kicked every Jewish person out of the capital city. Like you just if, get out, go. Anti-Semitism, ethnic bias, nothing new, right? So Paul wants Christians to be different. He sees a world that is marked by ethnic conflict. And he wants the church to be embodying multi-ethnic generosity. He wants the church to be a place of reconciliation and healing and hope and peace. And he knows that if this Jewish guy belongs to Jesus and that Greek guy belongs to Jesus, then they belong to each other and they can't call each other dog and you know criticize and kick each other out of the city and things like that. They have to have peace in Christ. And so one of the ways that peace is expressed is if a bunch of Jew Gentiles, Greeks, get up a collection and send it back to help the struggling church in Jerusalem. And so Paul is doing that job and he's working that ministry. And so he invites the Corinthians and his relationship with them is tense at best. If you read through 2 Corinthians, like Paul, and they, they've got some concerns about Paul and they're worried about some things and he is still inviting them to live into this offering. And if you pay close attention, you can see that the offering really depends on close relationships, doesn't it? The Macedonians, the Philippians, even though they are uh, being afflicted, persecuted, there is this shared joy. That even though they are poor, right? they're extreme poverty, he says. They, these folks don't have a lot come together, they put their resources together to embody generosity for those in need, for the Jerusalem churches. That is, it's not like one person going, all right, I'm on board. Somebody over here, okay, I'm on board. It is their group, it's their congregation of believers that are 
banding together to embody generosity. First to God, Paul says in verse 5, they are related to God properly, and then to us. And Paul's inviting them into deep community with him, to a shared mission, to shared life. They give themselves, verse 5, he says, first to God and then to us. Now, it's crucial to see that Paul isn't just pulling this out of thin air. He grounds the generosity that he wants to see in the believing communities. He grounds that in the life of God Himself. Jesus reveals the life of God. Jesus embodies the generosity of God. And so if you read down to verse 8 and 9, right? Paul says, I don't say this as a command. I'm testing the genuineness of your love against the earnestness of others. Come back to that in just a second. And then he substantiates the whole claim. He has this appeal. I want you to give to the churches in Jerusalem. And, he, and, I'm, and I'm not commanding it. I'm not trying to twist your arm. I'm not saying, you've got to do this. It's your Christian duty. He says, I just want to know if you love your brothers and sisters in Christ. You love Jesus. Testing the genuineness of your love against the, gener- against the earnestness of others. Verse 9, he says this, For you know, this is substanti- that little word for means here's the evidence. I'm substantiating everything I've just said. For you know the generous act of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though He was rich, yet for your sakes He became poor. And what's Paul doing here? He's talking about Jesus. He's talking about Jesus being rich and he's talking about Jesus becoming poor. What's going on there? I mean, is, this, this, is the image like Jesus like sitting in a room counting his money? Is that what he means when he says, though he was rich? That's not what he's talking about, is it? We, we know enough about the Bible to know that's not what Paul means. He, ha- he has some, something else going on here. What's he doing? He's inviting us to think about the movement of Jesus from his eternal posture in relationship with the Father and the Spirit to this earth. He's talking about Christmas, isn't he? He's talking about Bethlehem. He's talking about the manger. But he's inviting us to consider that movement, right? Though he was rich in heaven, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, he is born in a manger, in a barn or a cable or like somebody's extra spare room or something like that. I mean, he's out there and experiencing poverty, experiencing lack, experiencing being constricted to one time and place where the Trinity isn't normally experiencing that. He's putting off, he's emptying himself, he's lowering himself, he's condescending, he is gaining the experience of his creatures, and he is going to suffer and die. Though he was rich, he became poor. Paul is inviting us to consider the life of God, not only before the incarnation, before Jesus was born, but the life of God in eternity. With this, with this statement, though He was rich, He is inviting us to reflect on that claim, that reality, that state of affairs before the incarnation, before the second person of the Trinity became incarnate in Jesus of Nazareth. So what was it like? What was it like? We think about God in different ways, don't we? Sometimes we think about God in relation to ourselves. 
He is what, what, like how do we what are the what's the kind of language we use to think about how God relates to us? He's our what? He's our creator. Uh, he's our redeemer. He's our judge. We don't like that one quite as much, but it's true. <laughs> he's our sustainer. He governs his creation. He upholds it. He's presented as a parent in the Scriptures. He relates to us like a father, sometimes like a mother, by caring for his children and nurturing his children. Sometimes he relates to us as a disciplinarian. God disciplines children that he loves, just like you. Try to keep your kids on the straight and narrow. (laughs) We can think about how God relates to us, and we can define God in terms of ourselves. It's also helpful to think about God not defined by us. That seems appropriate, doesn't it? Should I always simply define the eternal God as he relates to me, or is there a way to talk about him in relation to himself? Hang with me. So if I'm not going to use language like creator, which describes God's relationship to the creation, or language like savior, which describes God's relation to sinners, or, 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 or language like sustainer, which describes God's relationship to his people, like how do I describe the relationship? How, how do I talk about God without talking about finite creatures? Myself, you, the world. How do I do that? The language we get in the Bible, we get from Jesus. Like, start with Jesus, and you find out how to talk about God as He is in Himself without reference to anything outside of Himself. And what is the word that reveals that? Father. Son. Holy Spirit. Before the world was made, before anyone sinned, before anyone needed to be redeemed, God existed eternally in perfect communion, one being in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we discover from the Gospels that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit love each other with a perfect love. I want you to try to imagine this with me for a moment, okay? We all know what love feels like, I think. We know it even though it's not always perfect love. Because the people we love and the people who love us, sometimes they hurt us. Sometimes they let us down. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit exist together eternally in relationships of love that never fails. The Father, the Son, the Spirit have never disappointed one another. They've never had to ask one another's forgiveness. The communion they have eternally is marked by perfect love. That's why the Scriptures can say, God is love. Because before he made anything to love, right? who did God love before he said, let there be light and let there be fish and let there be you? Who did he love? If there's no trinity, there's no answer. Right? Before God made anything as the object of his love, before he loved Adam, before he loved you, before he loved me, the Father loved the Son and the Spirit, the Son loved the Father and the Spirit, the Spirit loved the Father and the Son. Eternally, 
perfectly. Self-giving love. And we see this in Jesus, right? Jesus shows up and He reveals things about God that we didn't know before. We know God is one. The Bible testifies all the way through. God is one. He is one being to be worshipped. No other God is uncreated. No, no, like All the other gods are false gods. He doesn't accept alternatives. He doesn't share His glory with any other thing. He, and idolatry, like He is very not happy with idolatry, right? Because it's attributing what only belongs to Him to something else. Like, he's the only one. But when Jesus shows up, He helps us begin to see that in the one God, there is relationship. We understand the importance of relationship, don't we? Maybe because that's who God is eternally. Ever think about that? Relationships matter to us because they are part of the deepest, truest reality that is eternal God. In the oneness of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit exist eternally in perfect relationships of self-giving love. They are lacking nothing. They need nothing. They do not create because they need us. They do not create because they are lacking. They don't make the world because they're going, man, we really need some creatures to you know, govern, and we really need some creatures to love. They, they are perfect. They like nothing. And Jesus shows up and reveals that. And He reveals this, this deep community of perfect love that exists forever. And I want you to take a minute and think about how beautiful that is. Just take a moment and think about how incomparably and indescribably and infinitely beautiful, eternal, perfect, triune love must be. Because we know how beautiful love is when we really see it. When somebody sacrifices themselves for another person or when, when two people uh, care for each other for 60 years in their marriage and one person gets Alzheimer's and the other person just cares for them and quits their job so they can care for this person to whom they said in sickness or in health. We know what it looks like. We've seen glimpses of it and we say that is beautiful and that is amazing and I, I want to be like that. I'm not always like that, but I want to be like that and we want to be like that because that's what God is like. And in those moments, in those glimpses, we see in those moments and we see in those kind of people, we see glimpses of eternity. We see glimpses of the character of God who gives and gives and gives abundantly without reference to Him. He just gives forever. It is the Father's joy to eternally beget the Son. We'll sing about that at Christmas in a few weeks. It is the Father's joy to eternally spirate the Spirit. Try that, it's a tongue twister. You don't know what it means, go look it up. Like the Father breathes forth the Spirit forever and brings forth the Son forever so that they exist in this eternal life of perfect community. And Paul says, look at the community. Take a moment to think about how he was rich. Right? If you have that sort of perfect love, eternal, triune, self-giving, perfect love, 
That's what Paul means when he describes the wealth of Jesus before the incarnation. That's what he's talking about. Though he was rich, lacking nothing, perfectly fulfilled in relationship with his Father and the Spirit forever. Though he was rich, he became poor. And he was born of a woman in a manger off the back of somebody's house. So that you could become rich. Not, like prosperity gospel warning here, like not so you could you know, believe more and get more, but so that you could come to participate in eternal, perfect, triune love. Christian life is not about, let me get my sins forgiven so I can get out of hell and I don't have to worry about that and I can live how I want. You have heard preaching like that. I have heard preaching like that. It's a lie. The Christian gospel is about, Jesus, thank you for forgiving my sins so that I can come to begin to participate in the perfection of your love. Maybe you want to say that to him right now. Jesus. Thank you for setting me free, for rescuing me, for reconciling me so that I can begin to participate in the eternal perfection of your unfailing Trinitarian love. Just let that sit with you for a moment. Though he was rich, he became poor so that we might share his wealth, share his life, share his perfect love. And Paul invites us to think about the divine community. God is one and three. At the heart of God, friends, is a community of persons committed to one another above all else. Let me say that again. At the heart of God is a community of persons committed to one another above all else. And when Jesus is born, and when He lives, proclaiming the kingdom and serving other people, the Son of Man came, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life. And when he dies as the ultimate gift of his perfect love, and when he is raised as the inauguration of new creation where we join him in that experience of perfect love, that is the, it, help, it, it allows us to see how generosity overflows out of the community that is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Right? Because... There is no deep generosity without deep community. And the deepest community is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the deepest generosity is the generosity revealed when Jesus shows up and reconciles the world to God and the Spirit is given to dwell within the people of God and empower us and enable us to participate in His life. And that's what holiness is all about. It's not, man, I've really tried to obey the Ten Commandments this week. 
Man, I'm struggling with this sin. I just can't get over it. Oh well, I'm a sinner. That's what it means to be human. Jesus says, I want to set you free. Not so you can stay in the muck, but so you can participate in my life and in my perfect love. Because here's the thing, friends. Like we cannot participate in the perfect love of the triune God if we are slaves to sin, can we? I mean, put those two things beside each other. Think about the last time you, you know, indulged in that temptation or that sin or whatever it was. You did that thing or you went that place, whatever it is. Like in that moment, are you really experiencing perfect love? Or do you feel guilt and shame and sorrow? Right? We cannot chase after our sin and chase after the participation in the perfect love of the triune God simultaneously. It's impossible. So Jesus comes and says, I want to to cleanse you. I want to set you free. I want to redeem you. I want to join you to myself. I want to set you free from the things that destroy you and the things that cause... I mean, who really enjoys the guilt anyway? Jesus says, you know that thing that you do and you feel shame every time you do it? Would you like to be free? Would you? Really like to be free? Jesus wants to set us free from that so that we can come into a deep experience of divine community with the body of Christ and experience and live out His perfect love. We participate in it so that we can embody it. And He is generous. He is generous. Embodying the love of the Trinity is particularly focused in this passage on generosity. The deep generosity of God is an expression of the deep community of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We are brought into that as participants in that community, together as a community, so that this community can embody that character. That's why there is no deep generosity without deep community, and it is why, in general, there is no holiness without social holiness, Christian community. So if we want to cultivate generosity, and maybe we don't, I mean, maybe we don't want to cultivate generosity, maybe we should just give up on that. (laughs) If we want to draw near to Christ, if we want to draw near to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in perfect love, And we're going to need to be increasing in sharing in that generosity. It requires deep community. And so Paul says, take a look at the Macedonians. Take a look at the Philippians. They gave themselves first to God and then to us. They're not solo. Christianity for them is not a solo gig. They are rightly related to God and they have given themselves deeply out of their poverty to us, to the community to the shared ministry that we have together. Paul doesn't just say, hey, take a look at the community, but he is inviting you to examine the deep shared commitment together. It's not, oh, hey, that one guy did it. (laughs) Or that one gal made a nice, she wrote a nice check. It's, they gave themselves to us. So then the question becomes, what does it look like for us to give ourselves to each other? 
first to God and then to each other. It looks like cultivating deep community, doesn't it? That's why we talk about worship, connect, serve. Because worship is essential, but it's only the first step. Gathering to worship is crucial, friends. We will not grow in Christ-likeness if we do not worship Jesus. We will not participate in the perfect love of Father, Son, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit if we do not worship Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But we'll only grow so much if we don't take the next step and embed ourselves in deep community. Give ourselves to God and others, right? To God in worship, step one. To others in community, step two. See the logic of the path. If we think following Jesus is a solo gig, we can forget becoming like him. If we think following Jesus is a solo gig, forget holiness. You can be real holiness by yourself, right? There's no one to get on your nerves. You're not going to lose your temper at people who aren't there. You're going to have mean thoughts about people who never are around to, you know, hurt your feelings. Or right? I mean, it happens in community. You get together with, you go to work, and there's that person, and they grate on your nerves, and you got to embody the character of Jesus. And it'd be a lot easier to embody the character of Jesus if they weren't around. Like I thought I was doing pretty good with holiness, and then I got married. And the Spirit of God said, hey, there are selfish things in your heart and you had no idea that they were there until you get in this sort of relationship. And then things get better. And we're like, we're doing good. Growing in holiness. And then guess what? Children! Your marriage and your children are a means of grace for your sanctification. Right? Because you have to give yourself to God and you have to give yourself to them. And you have to teach them, parents and grandparents, how to give themselves to God and to one another. You see this? You see how it, like you cannot do it solo. It doesn't work. No holiness but social holiness. Apply that to generosity. No deep generosity without deep community. So how do we cultivate deep community? Thursday night, come on down. Pastor Eric has been reaching out to some of you and we are throwing it out broadly as we possibly can. We are pivoting. 2020, COVID-19 has forced us to reevaluate everything we do. One of the things that we've had difficulty, uh, or that we've had to reevaluate is Wednesday night, adult education groups, Sunday school, some have resumed, some are still meeting online. One has not come back at all yet, as far as I know. Maybe they started today, a little bit. <laughs> so how do we cultivate community in a world where we have fear of gathering together? So we began to think, well, it may be hard to get 15 people together around a table or in a classroom. Maybe a few folks would show up. Some of you probably would, but you know, some folks would have fear, and we're not sure that the energy would have the same impact that it used to have. So what if we maybe took a book from John Wesley's play, or took a page from John Wesley's playbook? What if we said, you know, we're more comfortable with three or four or five people anyway right now. A lot of people have, I mean, are at least around a handful of people, if not in large crowds or medium-sized crowds. What if we encourage folks and kind of help build 
something like Wesley's discipleship bands into the life of Hope Hall United Methodist Church. Not a Bible study, right? not a doctrine class, not a book study, a how is it with your soul moment. It's been a tough year. You're obviously hurting. You want to share that? Can I pray for you? Take a moment and think about what it would be like to be in a group of four or five folks asking each other, how can I pray for your joys and your burdens for five years? You think you would grow in Christ-likeness if you commit to that? I mean, seriously, it's not a rhetorical question. Do you think you would grow in Christ-likeness if you commit to Christian community like that for five years? Yes, yes, yes. It's in the Gospels. It's in the, the epistles. It's in the entire Bible. It's in the history of the church. It's clear everywhere that this is how Jesus does His work when believers come together to bear one another's burdens and celebrate one another's joys to say, how is your soul? How is your life? How are your kids? How are your coworkers? How can I pray for you? How can I share and minister to you? That's how you get deep community. And here's the thing. Deep community will abound in deep generosity without even really thinking about it. Because if you just practice giving yourself to other people, your character changes. You just become a more generous person. Because remember, generosity isn't just something you do, it's a way of life. It's not just writing a check on Commitment Sunday or filling out that card next week. We will do that, but that's not the sole expression of generosity. There will be other opportunities to commit to serving, to join a band meeting, say all the way across, I'm going to show up, I'm going to worship God, I'm going to take the next step, I'm going to get into a deep community group, I'm going to take the next step, I'm going to serve, whether it's in the nursery or in the soup kitchen, wherever, I'm going to be there, I'm going to give of myself, I'm going to give myself to God, and I'm going to give myself to this community because I want to participate in the life of the triune God in His perfect, eternal, self-giving love. You ready for that? I'm going to warn you, community is messy. Somebody's going to hurt your feelings. Somebody's going to rub you the wrong way. It's going to get, there will be hindrances. Things will emerge. Frustrations will happen. And then we have an opportunity again to embody the love of Jesus and say, you know what? I forgive you. <laughs> I love you even when you hurt me. I'm going to give myself to you even if I don't agree with you. I want us to see generosity is not just commitment Sunday. It's not just those letters you get every so often about the church finances. Those are important. Generosity is so much bigger. Generosity is the way I talk to my kids when I get home from work on Tuesday night after a late meeting and I'm tired. Generosity is carving out time for my family. Generosity is putting in the time to make sure the sermon is what it needs to be so that your time is worth it on Sunday morning. 
generosity is returning forgiveness for offense. It is empathizing with people who are not like us, who have experiences that are different from ours, who we do not understand. You know what? I really don't get what it's like to be you, but I'm going to do my best to, to embody the character of Jesus to you. It's a way of life. It is the life of Christian discipleship. I want us to see, I long for us to see that this is just so much bigger so do some small things this week. Take a mug and give it to somebody and tell them you love them. Tell them Jesus loves them. Tell them we love them. Find little way, little practices, little steps so that generosity becomes a way of life. You've been listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hole United Methodist Church. If you enjoyed this message, consider sharing it with a few friends. Remember to visit us at hopeholeumc.org sermons and subscribe to get notified when new content is posted. Thanks for listening.